What are the future trends that are sneaking up on us rapidly? Beasley Media Group Vice President of Programming Buzz Knight interviews thought leaders of today on new innovations, new methods, new strategies, and new thinking. On this podcast, Healthy Paranoia. Our Healthy Paranoia podcast to date has focused on new thinking and the trends surrounding us in technology. But on this edition, we start a series of podcasts on leadership and some of the most striking and impactful examples in our history. Doris Kearns Goodwin is the Pulitzer Prize winning author of multiple books capturing the beautiful essence of many of our presidents from Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, FDR to LBJ in stunning and vivid detail. Her experiences working for President Lyndon Johnson shaped her passion and brilliance as a historian, and her new book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, focuses on the four presidents in an examination about their growth and development of leadership. Back here with the one and only Doris Kearns Goodwin talking with her today about her amazing new book, Leadership in Turbulent Times. Congrats, Doris, on your new Simon & Schuster release. It's a masterpiece. And uh, on this episode, we're going to focus on Teddy Roosevelt and his amazing story of leadership. And you asked the question, how often is chance at play in uh, Roosevelt's success as a leader? Can you talk about that? Yes. I mean, when he was 23 years old... He was um, not really sure about anything to do with politics until he was approached, actually, by a political boss who thought, maybe you could run for the state legislature. And the reason was not that they saw the makings of a leader in him, but rather that his father had been a philanthropist who was well-known in New York, who had died, but they thought the Roosevelt name would be good. And he then started going to the, the saloon hall where the... Republicans would meet in this silk stocking district. And he suddenly realized that he really did want to do this. But it was chance in a way that he was approached to begin this. And then throughout his life, there's so many times that chance will intervene. I mean, it happens to all of us. But when you look at the a leadership development over time, you see that when chance happens, when an opportunity arrives, the key thing is that you have to make the best advantage of it. You have to be ready for it. He would say that. He would say, opportunity has to come, chance has to come, but you have to be ready for it. And in this case, he was ready for that first step into the state legislature. Talk about his ambitions from this complex series of origins that he really came from. Yeah, I mean, his father adored him, and his father was almost like his teacher. I mean, because Teddy had asthma as a child, um, he was not able to go to regular formal schooling. So he was home-tutored, as a lot of people in his class probably were at that time, and so too were his siblings. But he got all sorts of interests, way beyond politics. He got interested in birds when he was young. He was taken on a trip by his father, a year-long trip to Europe and to the Middle East, and he got interested in big-game hunting. And he would keep dead snakes in his room and, and dissect them, and he was creating the little Roosevelt Museum of Natural History so that he really thought what he wanted to be was the J.J. Audubon of birders. And he went to Harvard hoping he could become a naturalist. But when he got to Harvard, the teaching was much more scientific in the labs. He wanted to be outdoors looking at the birds. So he realized that's, that's too, I'll be too restless to become that person. So instead he went to law school, and, and law school didn't fit him either. It just seemed like you have to take one side or the other. You can't just fight what you believe in. So then when he got this opportunity to run for politics, that's when for all these four people that I've studied, 
at a certain point, the voice within tells them, this is what you are meant to be. That's when your passion unites with your profession. And it's a great moment for any of us, I think. And back to the, the shaping of his love of nature, um, he actually said, I would not have been president had it not been for my experience in North Dakota, right? No question. What happens to him is he's moving up the ladder in the state legislature. He's imagining that he might become a state senator, maybe then a congressman, then a senator, and maybe even president, sort of thinking about it as steps on a ladder. But then while he's in the state legislature, when he's still only 25 years old, his wife had given birth to their first child, Alice, and died in childbirth. And his mother, who was only 49, had come to take care of Alice, and she got a sudden attack of typhoid fever, died on the same day in the same house. And that double tragedy so undid him that he moved from the East Coast to the Badlands, to North Dakota, where he had purchased a ranch the summer before as an adventure. And he actually lived there for two years. And the importance of that was that he became a cowboy. He was living an entirely different life than this privileged kid in the East Coast. And he saw the beauty of the landscape, which was imprinted on his soul. And then forevermore, those great conservation measures that became part of his legacy were born. But even more than that, when he first came, when he finally came back to the East Coast, he no longer thought of himself as climbing a ladder. He saw what fate had done, taken away his wife and mother on the same day. So he said, I'm just going to take whatever job seems really interesting to me, and I'm going to just make the most of it, and I'll learn from it, and then I'll figure what comes next. So he takes a job as civil service commissioner. His friends say, why are you doing this? It's below you. He said, I just want to do it. I believe in the merit system. Then he becomes police commissioner of New York. And again, they're saying, why should you take such a thankless job on? He said, I just think it would be interesting. Then he becomes a soldier in the Army and then becomes eventually governor and then vice president and assistant secretary of the Navy in between. So it's one of those winding paths to leadership. I mean, we often think that you just move to the next step up where you can in your organization. But what he's suggesting is sometimes you go horizontally or even down in order to learn something that you will bring with you to that next step. And in the end, even though he's the youngest president in the history of the country, he was so incredibly prepared when he got there at every level of government. Did he immediately have the uh, uh, empathy skills as a leader? No. I mean, what, what Teddy Roosevelt himself would admit is that when he first went into politics, it was for the adventure of it, not to make life better for other people. And that when he first started as a state legislature, going to a tenement house where cigars were being manufactured and they wanted to outlaw it. And at first he thought, I don't want to outlaw that. It's laissez-faire. The business should do whatever they want in that house. But he was taken by a labor leader to the tenement house, and he saw the terrible conditions that kids and parents were living in. And he said that began to develop in him the ability to see things from another point of view. And so he started doing that more. As police commissioner, he's walking the streets at night. He's seeing the slums at night. And he said, maybe at first, if you've come from a privileged background, you feel a little self-conscious going into these other places. But after a while, it becomes natural, and you learn things, and you develop empathy. He called it fellow feeling, but it was the same thing. His energy throughout all of these experiences, I mean, really <laughs> jumps off the page, you know. Uh, this was a skill set that really served him as a leader, right? Without question. I mean, he just, say, people who knew him said he could never sit still. I mean, he just would be, even if he was in class in Harvard at a time when it was 
sort of considered good form not to ever interrupt the teacher, not to even like your classes, but to go through with the gentleman see, he'd be popping up out of his seat asking questions of the teachers. He could never sit still. I think it may have had to do with the fact that because he had such life-threatening asthma as a child, he had to make his body, as his father told him. At a certain point, his father worried that he was reading so much. He was in bed that he was becoming an invalid. It was great because he became a ferocious reader as a result. Um, he said, you, know, you have the mind but not the body, and if you don't have the body, your mind cannot go as far as it should. So he would exercise every single day, I mean, pulling himself up on the horizontal bars, boxing, wrestling, and that physical exercise, I think, gave him even more energy. And so the, the thought of Teddy Roosevelt not talking or not sitting still is an impossible thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I love how his, his leadership skill was really, it was governed by such simplicity but yet it was brilliance also, right, in terms of just the things that were those uh, statements he would make, like hit the ground running, right? Right. I mean, he understood that in order to succeed with ordinary people, you had to speak in straightforward, simple language. And he loved these punchy statements, you know, speak softly and carry a big stick, or don't hit until you have to and then hit hard. Or he even gave Maxwell House the slogan, good to the very last drop. He would have been very well suited for today's Twitterverse world because he could have done those really punchy statements that would exactly say what he wanted the people to hear. When he would go on these train trips around the country and talk about the square deal, again, the square deal illustrated it's for the rich and the poor, the wage worker and the capitalist. It was a time much like ours when he was in office that the Industrial Revolution had shaken up the economy like the tech revolution and globalization has done today. And he was aware that there was a big gap between the rich and the poor. A lot of immigrants were coming in from abroad. And he realized there was a lot of anxiety on the part of people who felt the country was changing too fast with all the new inventions. And then it's the light bulb and the telephone and the telegraph that they wanted to go back to an earlier America. So what he had to do was to persuade people not to look back but to look forward and to have moderate reform that could be embraced by both Republicans and Democrats alike. The other one that he talked about a lot was was a consolidating control. Right. Well, he when he was in the Civil Service Commission or on the Police Commission, there were three people who were his fellow commissioners, and he realized early on that he had to become the chief <laughs> and that he had to consolidate control. Otherwise, sometimes with too many people deciding something, it can become endless debates and discussions. So somebody had to take charge and he willingly took charge. I mean, his daughter Alice said he always wanted to be in the center of things. He so wanted to be in the center of things that he wanted to be the baby at the baptism and the bride at the wedding and the corpse at the funeral. <laughs> <laughs> That's good old Teddy. That's awesome. And I think it'd be an understatement if we said he asked a lot of questions of those around him. You know, one of his leadership traits was that when he got into a new position, like, say, the police commissionership, he knew very little about how the police department worked or what they were motivated by, so he would just run around and find people that he could ask the questions to. He found some police reporter who had known pretty well, and then the police reporter suggested to him, he was a famous reporter as he turned out, why not go out on the street at night in a midnight ramble, as they called it, disguise yourself so that they won't know that's you, and just start asking questions of people on the street. Have you seen your policeman who's here supposed to be on this block? Or asking somebody who was a policeman who they finds in a bar, what are you doing here instead of outside? And then finally they realize, oh my God, it's the commissioner himself. <laughs> 
Was he the first uh, managing by wandering around leader? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I suspect he really was. I mean, you could argue that Lincoln wandered around to the army camps, but because Roosevelt was in New York and had more access to be able to get lots of places just by traveling, I mean, he took a train trip um, six weeks every spring and every fall, and he would just somehow have the whistle stop stop at the place. He would talk to local newspaper editors, ask them what was going on, listen to complaints, and then wave to people as he went along the way. It, it gave him a feeling of getting out of Washington, and, and travel allowed him to do that even more than it did for, for Abraham Lincoln. And for as bold, as confident uh, as he was uh, as a leader, um, can you describe his, his self-awareness? Yes. It's interesting because he was not only confident but really cocky when he was young. But in the very first time he was in the state legislature, because he had such a great speaking capacity and he could get really tough with the opposition, he was constantly making headlines in New York State, blistering remarks about the opposition, about corrupt judges, and he made headlines. But after a while, he got a, he himself said, I got a swelled head. I thought I alone could do it. I didn't need anybody on my side. And he couldn't get any legislation through because he had made enemies not only of the other side, but even of his fellow reformers because he had got such a swelled head. So he said, I finally learned that you had to work in compromise and civility with other people. And that was an interesting part of him, that given his his you know enormous self-confidence and his fiery temperament, he was able to look at himself from the outside in and question and know that he had to grow as a leader. Leslie, what can today's leadership learn the most from Teddy? I think the most important thing to learn from him is that he was able to bring sides together, not through kind of moderate talk, but through fiery talk. I almost think that's what was needed today. We need people who really believe passionately in changing things, but they're not frightening in so doing, So that, and they're not condescending to the other side. He, What he said, I think, fits so much today. He said, the rock of democracy would founder if people from different sections, regions, and classes viewed each other as the other, that unless they view themselves as citizens with common duties and common expectations, then democracy's in trouble. And I think that's a polarized situation we're in right now, and we need somebody to pull that together with that kind of exciting, vibrant, energetic temperament of a Teddy Roosevelt. Thank you, Doris. I look forward to our next episode with uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his leadership in Turbulent Times, the great new book from Doris Kearns Goodwin. Thank you. Thanks to Doris Kearns Goodwin for sharing her insights from her new book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, now available from Simon & Schuster. Thanks for listening to Healthy Paranoia with Buzz Knight. Steady production guidance provided by Boston Beasley Media Group's Mark Clark.